Our guest on this edition of the Geopolitics and Empire podcast is Professor Noah Coburn, who is a political anthropologist at Bennington College. His focus is on political structures and violence in the Middle East and Central Asia. He teaches courses on the overlap of politics, power, and culture. He has conducted over five years of field research in Afghanistan and also in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan. We'll be discussing the lucrative private contracting job market that services the never-ending global war on terror in Afghanistan, and we'll be taking a break a bit from the usual politics of empire and look at an aspect perhaps that's less spoken of uh, from an anthropological and ethnographic perspective, looking at the lives lives of those who participate as contractors. His latest book is Under Contract, The Invisible Workers of America's Global War. It's an honor to have you on the show, Dr. Coburn. Thanks so much. I really appreciate your time and your interest in the subject. I just finished your book. It, uh, I really enjoyed it. I gave it a five-star review on Amazon, and I urge lis- listeners to go uh, and check out the book. Uh, and in the book, you mention that regarding the Afghan war, that more countries have partook, uh, partaken in the war than in World War II, and that, if I'm not mistaken, over three million non-Afghans have been involved in its uh, logistics. And your book focuses on this machinery the underbelly that services the war, this privatized contract work. You've spent many years on the ground uh, there and in the surrounding countries. Could you just tell us a bit to start off, what inspired you most to, to spend uh, the years years in the field and s- these dangerous locations, and what questions were you trying to find the answers to? Sure. I mean, uh, there's not a, a short answer to that one because that's really uh, – asking me to describe about the last 15 years of work that I've been doing. But I really went over to Afghanistan to initially conduct field research in a very traditional anthropological way, living in a small community and looking at local political structures. And I went over initially in 2005 when things in Afghanistan were much more stable than they are today. And so my research did not initially focus on the war, but as I was there, the war increasingly moved up from the south and came to touch the lives of a lot of the people I lived with and touched my work. So my work increasingly became focused on the war itself. And when I returned to the United States after some time in Afghanistan, One of the things I was struck by is the sort of simple narratives that the media in particular tells about the war in Afghanistan. And in particular, it oftentimes describes this as a fight between uh, American soldiers and a small uh, insurgent resistance um, of mostly Pashtuns from the south of the country. And in fact, one of the things that I came to realize while traveling there, while working there is When you look at a U.S. military base, a, quote, U.S. military base in Afghanistan, that base has U.S. soldiers on it, but it actually has just as many international contractors oftentimes. And some of these are from the U.S. and um, Western Europe, but actually uh, the vast majority of them are not. They're from South Asian countries like India, Nepal, Bangladesh, from places like Philippines, Eastern Europe. And one of the things I realized was that the story of these contractors who came to the war in Afghanistan was really one that people had very little knowledge of. 
Um, and it was one of those things that even I, I had been somewhat blind to uh, during my initial time in Afghanistan. So I basically took a year to track down as many of these contractors who had returned home as possible and try to understand the war from their perspective. So that was really the, the driving force initially of the study. I'm curious, were you ever in any great danger at any time? That's a tough question to answer precisely. In Afghanistan, the war is always there in some ways. So I had a couple of run-ins where I was pretty close to explosions and a few incidents like that. But the, the important thing, and I've tried to get to this somewhat in this book and in some of the other work that I did, um, Afghanistan is a country of over 25 million people. And for the most part, life goes on now. So one of the things that's remarkable about the current war is how it's been able to simmer along without massive battles. And we don't see some of these large scale confrontations. Instead, what we see is just low levels of insecurity and sort of constant low levels of threat, um, but not what we envision oftentimes in, in the, our, the war movies that we see on TV. So let's get into the private contracting. Uh, you've mentioned in your book how the DOD eventually gave $310 billion to contracting companies, which uh, you say is a greater amount given out than all other government agencies combined and nine, some 9% of the entire U.S. budget. And by 2016, contractors formed 76% of the military personnel out there. And it's interesting to note, um, you know, from historical perspective, uh, to compare to the Roman Empire, the, the American Empire, towards the end of the Roman Empire as well, most of their soldiers became mercenaries or paid uh, guns for hire. Um, so w why do you think there was such an increase um, in private contracting in the global war on terror, especially in Afghanistan? You know, was it need or was it for profit or, or both? Um, it, it's both. And I mean... Contracting is one of those remarkable things that both the Democratic and Republican administrations over the last 20 years have agreed upon. Um, we see increases of contracting under Bush, under Obama, um, and increasingly, it seems, under Trump. Um, what you have is contracting is a way of reducing the political costs of war for every contractor that is in Afghanistan or Iraq or elsewhere fighting. It's one less uh, U.S. soldier who's at risk. And really, I think what politicians have learned during the global war on terror, unfortunately, is that the real cost that they're afraid of is um, the risk of, of uh, uh, U.S. casualties, which then make major headlines. Um, at the same time, you have a military industrial complex, which is well documented. So you have uh, companies that are willing to swoop in quickly um, when they see this demand by the government. Um, so what starts out as um, a military um, a military strategy quickly gets turned into a business strategy as um, more and more aspects of the war get contracted out to um, contractors to do everything from building of bases to actually guarding the U.S. embassy. And you, you recently wrote a piece for The Diplomat, which which I had mi missed and read right before uh, talking to you uh, with this interview. And you note how the U.S. is going to be increasing funding for private 
contractors. You mentioned Eric Prince of uh, the former Blackwater. Uh, as well, you describe uh, this contracting out of these businesses to subcontractors who then contract out to other subcontractors and so on. It's like uh, the Matrushka, the Russian Matrushka doll. And you say you say that relying on private contractors will help continue the war because of these these private uh, profits and that private contracting needs to decrease. Um, could you elaborate on that thought? Well, I, one of the things, and it's a more subtle point that uh, I make in the article that I think is is important is right now it seems like the Trump strategy might not be uh, handing over the war to Eric Prince the way and Eric Prince of course for those who don't know former head of Blackwater um, the private security company um, but at the same time it's important to note that while we're having this debate over whether to privatize the war, the reality is in many ways, the war has already been privatized. Um, the most recent numbers available, the US right now is employing three times as many contractors in Afghanistan as there are soldiers. And what happens oftentimes is whether this is a overt strategy or not, the thing you need to keep in mind is the difference between a contractor and a soldier is when I would interview Nepali uh, private security contractors who worked on these bases, ultimately they were there for a paycheck. And what that means is that if the war were to end, um, they would stop receiving that paycheck. And we see that um, across the board where the contractors there might not be working necessarily to prolong the war, but it's also not in their best interest for the war to actually end. You know, that, that was actually leading into my next question. And one of the most interesting parts uh, of your book, the idea I took away was that most of the people involved directly or indirectly in the contracting, they seem not to care so much about the legitimacy of the global war on terror or, or the moral or ethical nature of the war. It seems most just cared for the economic uh, aspect, often because there were such poor prospects in their home countries. Uh, and so could you talk a little bit more about the motivations of, of these workers from, I guess they came from India and, and Nepal and the Philippines, uh, working for these security companies? Absolutely. Let me, I'll give you uh, an example, but let me just give you a quick, uh, a quick uh, funny little quip first. One of the you ask whether it, that it seems that perhaps they didn't care about some of these moral aspects and political aspects. And I think the reality is a lot of them didn't even know what they were getting into. Uh, and one contractor I interviewed um, explained to me how he got confused between Afghanistan and Dubai. Um, and he had thought that Afghanistan was Dubai. So when he arrived in Afghanistan, he wondered where all the big buildings were and why everything was made out of mud. So you can see these contractors that get sent out oftentimes have very little idea of actually where they're headed. Um, so to give you one example of one of the more extended interviews I did, I, I interviewed a cook from southern Afghanistan um, from a very poor family. Um, he really had very few job prospects. The economy in Nepal is um, not strong and is particularly oriented at exporting labor to places like India and the Gulf. Um, and to get ahead, what happened was he had a cousin who had done some work in Iraq originally, and um, his cousin had used a broker to get to Iraq 
And the broker essentially convinced the, the family to send him down to Delhi where he would get a um, Afghan uh, visa and then go to Afghanistan from there. And he would earn, I believe he was promised $500 a month. Um, and this is a young man. He was about 19 at the time. And his family actually went into debt to pay the broker because you have to pay all those fees up front. Um, he's sent down to Delhi. He stays in a guest house where he has very little contact with people other than the broker. Um, and then he essentially gets put on a plane and flown from Delhi to Afghanistan, where he's picked up at the airport and taken to a base. Um, at that base, he's then immediately told um, that the salary he's been, he'll, he'll receive is only $350 a month. Um, and he protests, but there's little he can do because once you're on a base in Afghanistan, where do you go? If he turns it down, there's no place for him to go. His visa is temporary. He could be arrested. Um, so he ends up getting uh, pulled into this sort of vicious cycle where he, his family's already in debt and he needs to work to get out from underneath that debt um, and ends up working on this base for a couple of years to pay off that debt and then send small amounts of money home. Um, ultimately, a lot of these workers, like Kusang, the worker I just described, had, had very little idea of what they were getting into, what the conditions would be like, or really um, much information at all about, about the war. And so what you see is you see a, uh, and the brokers and those running the bases, remember, um, it's very much in their best interest to make sure that those workers don't have much information so that they can't leave, so that they don't go looking for other job opportunities. So one of the things that was very striking to me was I talked to Nepalis who had been in Afghanistan for 10 years working, um, and they had very little information about the country because they were essentially told that all Afghans were terrorists who would kill them. Um, so the the contracting companies really work to um, increase fear among the workers and increase the sense of a cultural divide between uh, the internationals on the bases and the Afghans who live outside of them. And, and I'm curious, uh, you know, I'm here in, in Kazakhstan. I actually have mm -hmm. three citizenships, three passports, U.S., wow. Croatian, <laughs> and, and Mexican. Uh -huh. And usually when I uh, go with uh, taxi drivers and, and we talk, uh, I, they, they always ask you, where are you from? Because, you know, you're the foreigner and it's a pretty small town here mm -hmm. in Kazakhstan. And I'll, I'll play around and I'll, 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 you know, I'll tell them, you know, I'm, I'm from Mexico. And I'll tell another driver I'm from Croatia. Mm -hmm. And then the driver usually they don't, that doesn't get much rise out of the drivers. You know, when I say Croatia, yeah. they'll, they'll say, "Oh, you know, World Cup, second place." But when I uh -huh. say I'm from America, that seems to get the biggest uh, response from uh, the Kazakhs. Say, and there's this you know image of America, and they, the one taxi driver I remember said Hollywood, Schwarzenegger. Mm -hmm. and so they've got this big image of America, and I'm wondering what sentiment did the contractors have toward. Uh, America and the Americans. Um, I know you tell one story of where a contractor was uh, waiting in line to get food, uh, I guess, at the cafeteria, and there was an American mm -hmm. uh, general behind him, and this contractor was going to let the general go right. ahead of him, but the general said, no, 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 you're, you, you were first, and after that, uh, I think you, you said um, he would keep telling that story to his, to his children. And that, yeah. that kind of gives you the idea that the contractor has this great uh, positive idea of America. So, so what are yeah. your thoughts on the sentiments? Of that varied a little bit country by country. But let me um, – and it was a little more – I think the relationship uh, between 
uh, America and the Indian and Turkish contractors I interviewed was a little more problematic. But let me focus in on the Nepali example for a second, because Nepal is a place with a uh, lot of geopolitical angst. It is feels very bullied by India. It has a colonial history with uh, Britain, um, and it feels somewhat threatened by China. So in that sense, America is seen as the one alternative to these things. And the United States, for the most part, has never done anything particularly nasty towards Nepal. So I think particularly in Nepal, you do have this vision of the United States as a place of great opportunity. So particularly for those Nepalis, working as a contractor for the United States was seen as, as a very positive thing. Um, one of the interesting things in India is actually India, which had a where contractors tended to have a little more sense of what was going on in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan was sort of seen as a little bit more of a, of a backwater and not a place that you necessarily wanted to go to unless you had to go for career reasons. So it was it was not perceived as positively there. Um, but one of the things that's interesting and I mean, and given your interest in empire in particular, that. I found that was very intriguing is when you go to Afghanistan, the vast majority of American um, hired international security contractors are Nepalis. And the thing that is interesting from my end is when you ask Americans, uh, soldiers or American contractors why these are Nepalis, oftentimes they don't know um, why they tend to be Nepalis and not Indians or Sri Lankans or Bangladeshis. Um, and yet for the British, the British are very aware that the British Empire had a long history of recruiting Nepali Gurkhas into the British Imperial Army. So there is this old um, military labor flow from out of Nepal towards the, the British Empire, essentially. And what's happened is contractors have just taken over that flow um, and use that reputation of, of Nepali Gurkhas known for their bravery um, to continue these very imperial practices um, that the United States is not even entirely aware of why or the fact that they are participating in that way. And yet very much there are pieces of what the Americans are doing in Afghanistan that's very much Brit built on this British history um, that they don't pay much attention to. And so you're an anthropologist, and so uh, you know the, the book that you wrote is a bit different from a uh, political science textbook that you would normally read. And so you have a lot of interesting stories because you were there on the ground conducting interviews. And so I'd like to ask about some of the negative aspects of the life of a contractor and, and the dangers and what can go wrong in the life of a contractor, because you you describe some Kafka-esque situations, such as, I guess, the one that sticks the most out is uh, one contractor named Tyr, who ends up in a prison through no fault of his own. He hadn't done anything wrong. And I think he was there for over two, between two to three years. And miraculously, when he got out, um, he didn't harbor resentment. So, I mean, can you talk about the dangerous aspect of being a private contractor in the global war on terror? Certainly. I mean, these contractors um, are mostly young men, mostly not super well educated, um, and are very much at the mercy, particularly of the brokers and the low-level government officials that are facilitating these labor flows. So what happens is 
contractors will go and start working. But if there's a problem with their visa, if they get fired from their job, their positions are incredibly precarious. Um, right now, there is no Nepali diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. So if you're a Nepali that's arrested in Afghanistan, as the in the example you described, Tir Magar was, um, he had no um, support. He had no attorney who spoke Nepali, which means he was sentenced uh, to prison for, I believe, 27 years um, during a trial that he essentially didn't understand what was going on at all. Um, and he had been essentially scapegoated by some of his colleagues. It was my ultimate understanding of the situation from some journalists that I talked to. Um, but the real reason that these companies are able to take advantage of these workers is because their positions are are so precarious. Um, and when um, the company stops protecting these workers, uh, that's when the real tragedies happen. Um, so I talk about another example of a broker who was essentially kidnapped or uh, of a worker who was essentially kidnapped by a broker um, and held for several months. Um, and really the fact was that while he was being held, even if he had escaped, he was terrified that if he escaped, he would be arrested by the Afghan police for overstaying his visa. Um, and if he escaped, he had no way of leaving the country. So when you're stuck, particularly when these brokers take your passports or when the contractors take your passports, um, contracting companies take your passports, you're left with very little recourse. Um, and so while that didn't happen to the majority of the contractors I spoke with, it did happen to enough that these contractors always were living in with some fear. Um, and this is also one of the reasons why um, these contractors often witnessed uh, and were very attuned to large amounts of corruption that was going on. But this corruption would happen and, and essentially those above them knew that they could never report it because they could essentially fire them or even worse, just let them uh, kick them off the base and they would be sent to Afghan prison. And just to compare, uh, you know, you mentioned a Russian uh, who, as far as you know, um they had a helicopter difficulty with the helicopter they they landed uh, and then they were insurgents uh, uh, kidnapped them and that a russian uh, was uh, imprisoned for a long time but to compare the different nation ethnic groups nationalities you know comparing to south africans or western europeans or, or americans would you think something like that could happen to to them well, it's, it's remarkable, right? I mean, and this was not something that I went in looking for, but the episode that you just described is uh, I interviewed two Turks who were kidnapped with a Russian, with a Kyrgyz, um, and I believe there's a couple of Afghans with them at the time. Um, and one of the things when you're in an international um, war like this that we don't always think about at first is the different values that are placed on these different lives and how kidnapping victims are treated differently. Um, so for example, the Turks in this case, um, the Taliban considered them Muslims and they considered them sort of Muslim brothers who had just gotten on the wrong side somehow. Um, so they weren't treated well, but they were actually treated much better than, than the Russian pilot in that example there. Um, but in the meantime, the Turks did have a diplomatic representation in um, Afghanistan. Um, so there was some ability to negotiate with the Taliban. 
Um, in the cases I looked at when the Taliban kidnapped Nepalis, one of the things that they found was that the Nepalis had much less value for them because the contracting companies would turn their backs on these workers. Um, and it was very hard to get a Nepali family to pay a large amount of compensation for the worker um, who had been kidnapped. So ultimately, the war puts different prices on people's heads with Americans and Western Europeans having a very high value and some of these other laborers having, unfortunately, a much lower value. Um, and that then contributes to the lack of information about these workers and contributes to um, the different ways that the conflict plays out for them. So those were some bad examples, but what about some positive aspects? I believe, you know, one of the positive stories you mentioned was a contractor who, I don't recall the detail exactly, but I'm supposing he saved $45,000 uh, from his work in contracting and then started a business back home that net him a million and a half uh, dollars. And so, you know, for the rest of his life, you know, he was pretty much uh, taken care of. So could you talk about some of the positive aspects for these contract workers? Well, that's that's the tricky thing about how these systems work, right? If there wasn't actually some benefit sometimes, nobody would do this. So the really tricky thing about this work, the labor in conflict zones is that um, – Sometimes it all goes well, and these workers earn much more in Afghanistan than they would have earned in Nepal, and they send this money home, um, and they're able to save and provide a better life for their families. Most of the contractors I spoke with were very adamant about sending their kids to school so they would be better educated, so that they wouldn't have to do um, the same type of work that their, their, their parents did. Um, the problem with that is, first of all, um, it doesn't always go that way. And second of all, there's also um, culturally, there is great shame in failure. Um, so for those who did go to Afghanistan and it didn't work out for, oftentimes those stories don't circulate. Um, so if for those who are kidnapped or those who just don't make money or they're cheated by brokers, they don't go home and tell their story to all their friends. But those few ones who are successful do go home and tell everybody, and then they become these sort of urban legends about the, these individuals who go off and, and make their fortunes, which is one of the reasons why I was able to find several of, of, of those cases as well. But so ultimately, you have a, a system that, that works some of the time, but doesn't actually protect the rights all of the time of these individuals. And that's one of the things that really contributes to the fact that this continues to happen and um, there's little sign that it's going to slow anytime soon. And I'd like to look at some of the wastes uh, of the money in the contracting business. And I guess uh, a lot of it would be from U.S. taxpayers. I remember long ago reading about uh, $600 toilet seats uh, in Iraq <laughs> uh, that, that were being charged to the U.S. government by, I, I think it was Halliburton, which I, I, yep. I believe Dick Cheney and Condoleezza Rice both had stakes in. Uh, you mentioned in your book, a $36 million command center that was built in Afghanistan that the U.S. military did not want and I suppose yep. ultimately did not use. Or another company, uh, if it was Supreme or Aegis, I'm not sure, where they overcharged the U.S. government by $700 million, which I guess later in court they paid back uh, the majority of it. So can you speak mm -hmm. to the 
the waste uh, of these taxpayer funds as well as you mentioned you know the u.s government contracts out to one company and then they subcontract and subcontract so there's a lot exactly. of a lot of places money can leak out and things can go wrong yeah well i think that's absolutely right and the fundamental lack of transparency and the fact that every layer of contracting that happens there's another layer of murkiness and one more layer of difficulty in terms of any sort of accounting of the actual costs here and what you just recited i think are are absolutely valid examples of of the spectacular waste that occurred um, both uh, in all of the war on terror whether it's in afghanistan iraq or elsewhere um, I think one of the things that I found most overwhelming listening to these contractors was also the less spectacular examples of waste that was just on a day-to-day -day basis, the type of waste that, you know, the taxpayers will never actually see and will never actually get an, 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 an accounting of. Um, one of the instances that just came to mind was um, a kitchen worker who I interviewed who was basically instructed by some of his bosses um, to essentially throw out wrapped in plastic, um, unopened uh, bags of rice and other food in the garbage. And they would throw it out. And then uh, the people who took out the garbage, as soon as they left the waste at base, would take the unopened sacks of food out and sell it off of the base. Um, and give the give some of the money back to the contractors and that money was being shared around but this is a, a small-scale scheme and yet it was massively adding up to the amount of money that was being wasted there in the kitchen um, and when you have this culture of corruption where um, businesses are stealing hundreds of millions of dollars then to have below those upper level officials, these mid-level officials who are overseeing sort of mid-level schemes, and then below that, um, lower level workers seeing smaller schemes. So um, the, the corruption at the top then trickles down and really you've got a um, culture of a lack of accountability um, that I think was particularly unique in Afghanistan and Iraq where you would actually have these bases that were purely contractor bases. There wasn't even a military presence there. And oftentimes the contractors I spoke with would talk about how when you were on a military base, there was some accountability because you couldn't steal in front of the soldiers. But as soon as you were on one of these contracting bases, all bets were off and it was much easier to run these much more extensive schemes um, of all different types. And talking about corruption and, and the blame game, it was often complained about how corruption was rampant in the developing countries, yet many you interviewed complained, complained saying that, well, you know, it wouldn't be possible uh, for this corruption to go on if the some of the Americans weren't doing it themselves, which they were, but just that they had this, you know, cleaner image. Uh, what can you say about the corruption that occurs at all levels of the contracting business and the perception that, you know, certain nationalities do it more than others. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, this is something that Afghans in particular, who I'm friends with, um, oftentimes complain about that Americans are always accusing the Afghans of, oh, it's the government so corrupt, um, when actually you see just as much corruption on the contracting side and on the international side. Um, but corruption is a 
useful tool for Americans to use to um, help explain in their mind why why the ongoing war is failing. Oh, if only the Afghans weren't weren't so corrupt. Um, when in reality, it has much more to do with politics and socioeconomic pressures um, and things like that. But corruption is a nice, easy way to sort of dismiss that. Um, and then in the meantime, um, there's basically a blind eye that's being turned towards any of the corruption that involves Westerners. Um, and keep in mind that for the most part, contracting companies, when you do have corruption within them, they have a real incentive to cover that up. So I had talked with some people who were uh, whose boss had basically been caught um, in sort of a mid-level scheme where he had been uh, taking tens of thousands of dollars um, in bribes to give contracts to certain uh, Afghan companies and not to others. And in the grand scheme of things, this is sort of a, not not a huge corruption scandal. Um, but what happened to this guy was because the company didn't want any bad press, they essentially fired the guy, um, but with no, no uh, real formal reprimand, they just sent him home. Um, so I think we will never see a full accounting of some of the corruption uh, involved in the global war on terror because it is in everybody's best interest who's involved to cover it up. Um, and I think um, my research uh, only could sort of scratch the surface of th some of these things. But when you have this corruption happening in, as you pointed out, a very dangerous place, um, very isolated bases, um, conducting real research systematically on it becomes very, very challenging. Um, and simply the process of trying to chase these guys down after the fact, which was the, at the center of my research, was uh, was a very um, taxing and time-consuming experience. What would be some other points you think uh, from your book under contract uh, or from your work in general that you, you'd like uh, to get across uh, for us to know about that, that you think are important in the global war on terror or in the lives of the people uh, in the ground or, or even for Americans back home? Uh, what are s some points you think are important? Well, let me... Uh start with the very micro and then go up to the very macro, because I think this is really a story that does that I'm trying to tell from the ground all the way up to the global. And I think on the micro level, um, one of the things that I'm trying to show is simply the diversity of the experiences of this war and how this war provided great economic opportunity for certain people and exploited other people. Um, and as you point out in, in the book, it relies really heavily on these different stories that I'm telling mostly for the reader just to get a sense of um, the dynamics of the war and how it impacts people in such profound and, and very different ways. And so there, what I'm trying to really push, particularly a American and Western audience to understand, is just the complexity of these wars that I think the American public tries to tries to keep in their minds is fairly simple. Um, and at the same time, the other on the more global side of things, um, we oftentimes talk in the uh, academic world about um, insurgencies as small wars, that these are locally run um, wars that are confined to certain areas. But as I, I pointed out and you mentioned, um, really you had um, individuals on both sides of the conflict that were um, from 
close to 100 different countries. Three million of them came from places like Nepal, from places like Serbia, from places like Ghana and Senegal. Um, there are very few countries on earth that didn't have some sort of involvement in this war in this isolated country in um, South Asia. So one of the things that's amazing is the way that we try to write off these wars, whether it's in Afghanistan or what we're seeing now in Syria or seeing in Yemen as um, isolated um, conflicts when really these are deeply global conflicts uh, and the world we live in now, whether it's with uh, labor flows or whether it's the, just the geopolitics, um, all of these countries are interlocking uh, and all of these stories intertwine with each other. And just to drop back down to the micro level for a second, a lot of the workers I spoke with who had been in Afghanistan were now looking for jobs in other war zones. So you essentially had private contractors trained in Afghanistan. And I talked to some who then served as bodyguards in Russia or working for casinos in China or were fighting in Yemen or were working in refugee camps in uh, South Sudan. Uh, so this is a war that really was global and continues to be global and keeps spitting out individual lives in different directions. And the, the ripples effect really is going to continue far into the future. You know, you're right. And I think uh, to borrow from Nassim Taleb, who's written the famous books such as Anti-Fragile and Black Swan, the idea of skin in the game. And, you know, the simple American, the, the armchair commentator uh, who has a lot to say about politics, but hasn't really left America or hasn't learned another language or hasn't lived in the foreign culture. I mean, you really not need to get out there. Uh, and as, as you have traveled in all these, these places to have a better understanding because it's, it's not that simple. And, you know, I, I, I'm guilty of it myself before I ventured out into the world to have a simpler, uh, idea, but then once you get on the ground and you see the situations people live in, whether it's really poor economic status or, or other societal relation problems, uh, with the way they ha the relations are structured in society, um, any other, the thought you have. No, I just really agree with that. And I think one of the really important things about getting out there, and I encourage my students to do this too, is because there is just this very uh, real diversity of experiences out there. And yet at the same time, there are some real things that unite us all as humans. And so as you were talking about chatting with the various taxi drivers and me chatting with these various um, contractors. I mean, one of the things I would sort of laugh about is um, I had visited a lot of the some of the bases that these contractors had visited. So I remember one of the guys talking about how good the hamburgers were at ISAF uh, headquarters in Kabul. And I had had hamburgers there. So all of a sudden we were talking about hamburgers at the NATO base in the center of Kabul. Um, and so really people can have these wildly different backgrounds and come from wildly different places, but it really is possible to have conversations about what this all means. And so I think, uh, I think you're right. Uh, and particularly it is something that I push my students to do is to go out there and have these conversations and, and try to understand how, um, how the, the, this globalized world works, whether it is in more dangerous situations, um, like Afghanistan or, or just looking at how, how, countries are interacting and individuals move between them. And I guess one of my final questions, uh, another story you told, uh, kind of like a chain reaction or, or a chain of events 
um, uh, like a ripple effect that, that mm -hmm. um, about the Georgian soldiers, the soldiers from Georgia who uh, received, I guess, a monthly salary of five hundred dollars uh, in Georgia, mm -hmm. but then they would go be work as uh, mercenaries, private contractors in Iraq or Afghanistan, and get a thousand five hundred dollars or more, and that this created a shortage, uh, a supply problem for the Georgian government, where they yeah. wouldn't have enough soldiers, and so this was affecting. Uh, other NATO members, could you uh, mention something about that? Yeah, well, it's just fascinating how, again, these various pieces fit together and how um, each country has its own trajectory and yet it intertwines with these more global forces as well. So, I mean, what you, the case you're referring to there, the Georgian context is really coming from this post-Soviet uh, political condition where... Um, the Georgian military in particular saw the global war in terror um, as an opportunity for them to become closer to um, the U.S. in particular and to use U.S. resources. So Georgia was one of the largest contributors to uh, the U.S. effort in Iraq, actually, and for a while was the highest per capita. And they sent all their soldiers over there with sort of the understanding that they would get trained by uh, U.S. military and then come back with better equipment and better uh, prepared um, and as a means to strengthen the military. But you're exactly right. They went over there and the, the side effect was they also started meeting all these contractors who um, were uh, getting paid much more than they were. Uh, and Georgians were a appealing target for private security contractors because um, a lot of this is racially based and um, you can charge more for a European looking contractor than you can charge for a South Asian contractor. So essentially what happened was um, all of these Georgian soldiers got better trained, but then left the Georgian military. Um, so the, the, the strategy in some ways ended up backfiring. Um, but it's, again, one of these stories that I think if you uh, ask your, your average American um, or e even a well-educated American who knows something about what's going on in Afghanistan, about how the war in Afghanistan impacted the Republic of Georgia, um, I think most people would have no clue. And what's your take on the Afghan war in general, which started in 2001 and is now in its 17th year, as well as the global war on terror, uh, and perhaps uh, some of the opinions of the people on the ground over the years that you've listened to? So for me, that's a very difficult question just because um, the town that I originally lived in in Afghanistan um, and where I conducted all of my initial field research um, was a town that had been completely destroyed by the Taliban. Um, they uh, came in, they gave the population 24 hours to leave, and then they essentially leveled the town. Um, and the only thing really left standing was the mosque. Um, so when I, I first went there in 2005, most of the um, townspeople were recently returned. They had been refugees in Pakistan, and some of them had remained in Kabul or in the Panjshir Valley. Um, and particularly in 2005, in this community, there was a deep gratitude towards the Americans for, um, for expelling the Taliban and giving them their town back. Um, unfortunately, as the war has dragged on and the townspeople's opinions have really shifted, right? Because they see the waste, they see the corruption, um, they see the fact that a lot of the Afghan warlords 
um, remain in power and are stealing from the people. So that this town that was initially very pro-American has sort of gradually over the next 13 years turned against the Americans for good reason. Um, and really what we've done, in my opinion, is we've taken a military situation and largely allowed um, business interests to take over it. Um, so I, I think we need to look for an end to this conflict. Um, but both the Obama administration and the Trump administration keep insisting on a military end to it. And I don't believe that there is a military end to it. Um, so I think there needs to be much more diplomatic effort um, by the Afghan government, but also by the U.S. Um, and this, there needs to be a demilitarization of the conflict and there needs to be much more pressure um, and effort put by American diplomats on both sides of the conflict. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that the Trump administration uh, is taking the opposite approach um, and is doubling down on military efforts while really gutting the State Department. Um, so that that makes foreseeing an end to the, the conflict quite difficult. What do you think would be some viable solutions? You know, you, you talked about demilitarizing if if they slowly wound down, um, if they just, you know, went home, like some say, what are some logical things if you were to end the war that, that could be done? Um, well, right now, I, I think just going home, the country would fall into chaos. I don't think the Afghan government right now is strong enough to hold the Taliban, but I also don't think the Taliban are strong enough to take over the country. Um, so one of, I think, and a lot of the Afghans I'm friends with, I think their greatest fear is, is uh, the Trump administration simply pulling everybody out with no real exit plan. Um, the issue right now is that with the international community funding the government and funding the Afghan military, um, a lot of people are making money off of the current stalemate, um, and that includes Afghan leaders. So I think the international community needs to be much more um, uh, much more active in terms of saying that funding is only going to come when we see certain results um, and that there needs to be good governance. And if there's good governance, then uh, you'll receive certain amounts of funding. And at the same time, the uh, U.S., has never made clear whether there are red lines with the Taliban. They've just said, no, we need to stop the Taliban. Well, it turns out we can't stop the Taliban. So if the Taliban are going to be involved in some kind of um, uh, power sharing agreement, what would the U.S.'s red lines be there? Uh, one of them, I would imagine, is that the Taliban can't prohibit girls from going to school, for example, um, or um, need to stop public executions. Um, but those are things which are very sort of, uh, simple questions that I, I, I believe the, the U S on the diplomatic side has not yet answered. Um, and a lot can be done to sort of lay out, uh, U S goals, um, and then, uh, allow Afghan leaders to respond to them. Because I think right now it appears that the U.S. doesn't have a clear strategy in Afghanistan, and the Afghans who are responding to that then don't know what to do. I have one uh, final question, but another one just popped into my mind. I just wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, former Prime Minister Karzai gave an interview, I think, on Russian media at the beginning of the year, and he was talking about how U.S. Uh, helicopters in Afghanistan were being used to transfer 
weapons to ISIS, uh, Daesh. And I don't know if you've heard anything about that or what your thoughts are. I've certainly heard those stories. I, I also, um, I haven't seen any evidence of that per se. Um, and, but I think that is good evidence of the fact that, and Karzai represents this very much, a lot of the Afghan population is convinced that the U.S. has some, for some reason, tried to prolong the war in Afghanistan. Um, and they say, listen, the Taliban is a bunch of ragtag tribes, men in the south of the country, and you're telling me that the mightiest army on the planet can't defeat them in 17 years. And it's, it's quite remarkable that this is true. And so I think on one level, uh, some people conclude that there, there's um, some sort of strategy here where the, the U.S. is deliberately um, empowering ISIS or deliberately empowering um, in, in empowering the Taliban. I, my personal sense is that it's actually much more simple than this. It's that the U.S. strategy has um, basically handed over control of the war to um, certain Afghan and international business and political leaders who have no interest in ending the war. So when uh, the U.S. government contracts out to companies that don't want the war to end and relies on Afghan partners who are making money off of the conflict, um, there's no reason to end the war. Um, and so th that's my sense of, of the ongoing nature of, of what fe really feels like ultimately a endless war. I guess my final question is, uh, you know, related to the theme of this podcast, geopolitics and, and empire. And that's, you know, for me, two of the things that really helped to explain a lot of these events, geopolitics, you know, from a scientific perspective and uh, the politics of empire. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, definition uh, of the American empire? Uh, that's a great question. And uh, I am far more of an ethnographer than a political theorist in terms of trying to establish a precise definition. Um, but l let me uh, make two points on that. First of all is something that I, I mentioned more briefly early on. I think as you pay attention to the decisions that the U.S. makes and the way it interacts in the world and you look at the history of it, the more you see overlap with um, practices and strategies used by earlier empires like the British Empire. So I think we need to become much more attuned to the way uh, the American political system and the American empire is built on these patterns of imperialism from earlier versions of empires. And secondly, I think the question of whether the U.S. is an empire or not, I, I try to answer questions like that from the ground up. And I think if you asked uh, a lot of the Nepali contractors I interviewed, for example, um, they would not use the word empire. And yet what they would describe um, the practices of the American um, government would sound very imperial. So I think in that sense, um, trying to look at, at what we see um, is, is quite important. Um, the, the last comment though I'll make in, in terms of, of what is the nature of this empire, I think it's important to sort of look, as I was saying, historically, but also ask what's new and what's different. Um, and one of the things in my mind that is different when we look at the case of Nepalis, for example, or Indians, um, is Indians were subjects 
of the British Empire. And subject implies a certain oppressive relationship, yet it implies a relationship that is in some ways ongoing. Um, so if you go to Nepal today, the British still run retirement homes for uh, Gurkha soldiers that retired from the British military and fought in World War II. Um, and, and this is an ongoing relationship that the British Empire has with its former colonial subjects. Um, the American empire is not based on colonial subjects as much as it's based on contracting. And contracting is very different than a uh, colonial subjugation because contracting has this sort of finite term length. So the American empire uses these individuals, but as soon as you are fired from your contracting job, the obligation of the U.S. government to you is over. So a lot of these uh, contractors who were um, injured or had other problems then are sort of abandoned by the U.S. government as soon as they're no longer useful in serving some sort of political or economic purpose. So I would really sort of try to pick at the differences between earlier imperial practices and, and current ones. And look, in particular, when it when we look at it through the lens of contracting, in some ways, this is this is a far more awful practice um, because of the way it, it uses individuals and then moves on. All right, we'll we'll leave it there. We've gone almost an hour, but that's because well, I found interesting a lot of what you've had to say. Uh, how can people best follow you, your work, and if you want to mention what research you're looking at going forward? Uh, so I'm on Twitter at uh, Noah S. Coburn, um, and you can follow a lot of my more recent articles. I, I pop up there, um, and really, I would uh, encourage you to. Take a look at, at my most recent book, Under Contract, which we've been discussing. Um, some of my earlier uh, books are also available on Amazon, and I think they can give you a sense of some of my thinking that, that led in this direction. Um, so those are all pretty good places to start. Yep, I definitely would recommend uh, your book if you're interested in the global war on terror and these sorts of subjects. Um, and it's on Amazon paperback or Kindle. I got mine in Kindle instantly because it's much easier than shipping waiting for the book uh, paperback to get out here to rural kazakhstan uh <laughs> it was uh, great talking to you noah listen i really appreciate you taking the time and asking really i think sensitive questions about what i, I feel is a really important topic so thank you <laughs>